Then please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 27. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Father, I ask for your help once again to communicate your truth as revealed in Scripture, to be faithful to to help it sing through me so that it would shine to those out here. Oh, Father, let us have a glimpse of what Paul saw when he said, Your whole counsel in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. I am beginning this morning a series I have decided to title it what is it well it would have been redemptive history and I thought hmm a lot of people that's kind of like maybe big words redemptive history but this is going to be a journey there's my title I got it there it came to my head a journey through biblical history. But other titles, which would get right at the point, would be a redemptive history, which means God's history in the way that He predetermined and brought about telling the story through this book that we call the Bible, the Hebrew and the New Testament Scriptures. It is... This series is an attempt to take this book. What is that thing going, not just hodgepodge, from beginning, open up Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created, to the end, Revelation. He's coming back and going to wrap up all that has been history so far. One thing this I pray, I hope, and I pray for myself, this is not going to be, is a series, which may be at least, it will be at least 20 weeks, it may be 30 weeks, I don't know, but it will not be a series on one doggone blasted thing after the other. It's not what this is, it's not my goal. The goal in seeing the major mountaintops from Genesis to Revelation there's a large assumption that I take, and I get it from Paul this morning about this whole council, that God is doing something in all of that history from Genesis to Revelation. He's doing something that is very distinct and clear and purposeful that ties all those stories, those happenings together. So in going through it, it is an attempt not just to see, okay, now we do know they all entered the ark and got animals like our little kids sometimes. But no, why? What is it saying? Because it's not nice little Noah's story. It's a story of God wiping out all mankind except for one family. But we want to know why. What is it about Him? Another way to say it, if you say, Joe, what is this series about? You say, this is a series over these next number of months about God. That's what it's about. It's not about one story after the other. It is about God. And to see why God did those things in the story and how it has a beginning and a middle and an end. Now, this is an introductory week. And as I normally do when I introduce books I'm going to teach through, I usually have, I don't know, four, five, six different introductions. So introduction number two. My goal in doing this over the next few months, 
This is it. If you, if you don't get this, you're not understanding why Joe decided to do this. My goal is that you will love God more deeply than you ever have. My goal is that you will adore Him, whom you see more clearly, more than you ever have. My goal is that you will fear Him with a biblical sense of awe that the Bible requires. Now, that's why this series. Because experience in my life and the Bible itself teaches me that the way authentic love springs out of our hearts, the way that an authentic adoration of God and a real biblical holy sense of fear comes is not merely by saying, feel this way. Love Him. But it's by getting a glimpse of Him whom you're to love. Of Him whom you are to adore. Of Him whom you ought to have a type of fear. You see it. The reason part of my love for my wife that I have had to do with seeing her and hearing her and communing with her. Not just, she's a mail-order wife, love her. I don't know who you're talking about. But when I glimpse, that's where authentic passions come from. That's why this series... In other words, my duty as a teaching pastor is not merely to stand up here in a pulpit and to say, love God, adore Him, fear Him, and work that way. My job, my duty, and especially over these next number of months then, is to say, look at Him. Look where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Just pause. Stop. He did this out of nothing. There wasn't material physical material in existence to mold, He spoke. And it came into existence. But God, it says, then the verb created. And in these next few months, we're going to have to stop between the subject God and the verb created. Because when you say God, that is filled with a massive assumption and content. And then you say He created because you may say, I have much pain. And I read the newspaper. I study history. There are people screaming their bloody minds out right now in this creation. And we have to ask a massive question. Who is this God? Why would He create if this is it? Oh, that's huge. For someone like me, that's a huge question. How am I going to love Him? The Bible lays out those answers. And then you look and you say, the next thing, mankind in Adam and Eve sinned, fell. And we see that God Himself subjected all creation because of that sin to futility. And then the story goes on and we see how God lays out in Genesis by His purposes this line of Cain and a line of Seth. We're going to contact, What is He showing us about the line of the unregenerate steeped in the spiritual death and then this other line where you see Seth starts to love God. And those are the line of Seth. Do this line of people who are born again or regenerate. And then you see the story goes on and we see something of God's character expressed in flooding the world in order to kill all humanity except for one family. 
And then the judgment at Babel. And then we see this eternal, infinite God electing one man. Abraham. Abraham. And promising through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we see this God hundreds of years later delivering His people through Abraham away from, out from slavery in Egypt. And we see this God giving His law. Summed up in the Ten Commandments, but then much more extended in this way His people, Israel, are to act in their religious cult. Then we'll see how this God led His people over the Jordan River into the land of Canaan that He promised Abraham He would give hundreds of years before. And we'll see this God fighting for Israel in order to displace those people groups. And we'll see these people in redemptive history, His people, constantly, constantly turning away from faith, trust, adoration of this great God of Abraham, Isaac, in Jacob, to the point where we don't want you to be king, God. We want a real king. Like everybody else has. And instead of wiping them out, God showed His mercy and His patience and gave them a king. And then He gave, through David the king, a marvelous promise that after this line, the line of David, I will give you an eternal king who will have an eternal reign and rule and kingdom forever. But the history goes on. God's very patient. And Israel again and again and again would turn away from this glorious Creator, this glorious God of promise, and become idolaters. God showed His judgment in splitting them, Israel and Judah, and finally Israel just got, just disappeared from the face of the earth with the Assyrians. And 150 years later, judgment came on Judah. God's people in the sacking of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Judgment is again shown forth. But God brought them back. And then the prophets finally stopped coming about around 430 B.C. 400 B.C. Hadn't been a prophet for a while. 350 B.C. We haven't had a prophet in 80 years. 330 B.C., Alexander the Great comes through that whole area of the Jews along with much of the rest of the Western world, Middle East, conquering it, Hellenizing it, bringing Greek culture to it. And then eventually the Romans take over that and with the Greek culture. And another hundred years go by and now we're into about 120 B.C. and finally in 80. B.C., Rome takes Jerusalem. It's part of the Roman Empire and subjugated. And it's been a long, long time since a prophet was sent to Israel. They have the books. They have the writings. And during this silent 400 years of no prophecy, Judaism has been being birthed to when all of a sudden, one day in Israel, at the Jordan River, there is a crazy looking guy who starts to proclaim, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Are you him, John? I'm not him. It's one coming after me. You know, let me just stop for a minute. There is a massive historical context 
for John the Baptist's words to make sense. And then that one comes. John starts to diminish. And this man Jesus starts to proclaim, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And you go to the end, there's a day when that king who had died and had been resurrected will come back and close up all of this redemptive history. The history of this world, planet, and universe. That's my job. I hopefully I've been doing it for four years as you just deal piecemeal with each book. Now I'm going to try to put this in a large framework that I hope will help you in your prayer life, in your pain life, as you understand Him, to see God, you know what you're doing, and I'm so happy you made me yours. But He has done so. He has revealed Himself through redemptive history, no other way. Another introduction. Why do this series? Let me put it in a context that James Hamilton, a pastor in Texas, says very well. Because as I stand here on Sunday mornings, not, not, not in a Bible college like I had when I have taught a series like this, but on a Sunday morning church service, why I'm doing it. Hamilton talks about the danger from many well-meaning evangelical pastors. Quote, They are a threat because in spite of their confession of faith in Christ, their words and actions treat Christianity as nothing more than the best form of therapy. They treat it as self-help. They treat it as the path to better marriages, better parent-child relationships, better attitudes and performances at work, and on and on. Christianity is about success here and now. That at least is what you might conclude by listening to their sermons and observing how they do church. What works best guides their decision making. But Hamilton goes on, and I agree with him. That's why I'm here this morning and over these next months. But Christianity is not primarily about any of that. Christianity is primarily about the Gospel about a holy God, rebels who deserve wrath, a divine Son who takes the punishment rebels deserve, and the promise of forgiveness for all who repent and believe. Christianity is about the triune God and the two natures of Christ. Christianity is about the Holy Spirit supernaturally causing people to be born again so that they love this story of redemptive history and find in it their hope and their joy. Christianity is about trusting the Word of God with all of our hearts and not leaning on our own understandings or on our own ideas about what works or what is relevant. Christianity is about longing for the return of Christ, who when He comes, will set up His kingdom, which means that this is not our home. Pastors who present Christianity as therapy and self-help do not present Christianity. In Romans chapter 15, end quote, in Romans chapter 15, 
Paul gets at the core. Why am I doing this series? Oh, because I long for your joy to grow. For whatever was written, Paul says, for whatever was written, now here's Paul, he's got a book. The book he has is the Hebrew Scripture. You call it the Old Testament. And he says, all that God had written through men in the Scripture was written for our Christians' instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, the Kings, the Samuels, through the encouragement of the Scriptures, Christian, you might have He says, God's story unfolding linear in history. Something came before the other and then something came after that and for a purpose. That is the means to fan a flame the fire of your encouragement of hope in this God. Here's another introduction. There's another underlying premise in me as I stand here and I hope it be in you if, you, if there's something wrong logically with these following statements please let me know and that is this our concern with truth and I mean most directly I mean in general does the earth go around the sun? Or does the sun go around the earth? There's, there's, one's true, one's not true. And I mean here though, most specifically, the truth as God in His eternal wisdom chose to reveal it in Holy Scripture. Chose to start it within the beginning God created. And on down the line to the end of the book of Revelation. Our concern with What's written, truth, is an inevitable expression of our concern with God Himself. Think about it. If there is a God, there is an eternal one who has the power of existence or being within Himself who flung you and everything else into existence, then just logically, by definition, whatever He, that God, that being, thinks about anything and everything is the measure that we, as creatures, derivative, should think. And therefore, not to care about truth is, to that extent, not to care about God. To love God passionately is to love truth passionately. Being God-centered in life is being truth-centered as a Christian. To be indifferent, careless, not care that much about you, to be indifferent to the truth, to the truth, especially of this book of redemptive history is to be indifferent toward God. Listen to what Paul says in, in Romans 3, verses 3 to 4. He says, What if some were unfaithful? He means here the people of the book, his fellow Jews, who had the right scripture. He says, What if some were, when it came to the, what God revealed about them, were just didn't believe, were faithless? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Paul's conclusion, let God be true, though everyone else a liar. Or Jesus said it this way in John 15, verse 26, but when the Helper comes, that is the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will 
bear witness about me. To love God. This is this underlying premise as we approach the overall structure of the biblical text. To see what's there. To love God is to love the truth of that overall what's going on in redemptive history. There's a false dichotomy that floats around within the church thinking that it can separate truth from relationship with God. It's a false dichotomy. It's a deception. You cannot say, I'm indifferent to truth, I'm indifferent to the cross and what it means and why and who this God is and the same time, but I have a relationship with Him. It might just be you like the music or you have to ask the question, what God, when you speak of Him, is floating around in your mind? It might not be the God of the Bible. That's simple, isn't it? I don't doubt the sincerity of Orthodox Jews. But I know that one Jew named John said, if you do not have the Son, Jesus, you don't have the Father. I don't doubt the sincerity of many Muslims. It's not about that. The question is, What God are we talking about? And He has revealed Himself to mankind. One place. In history, in recorded, through this book we call the Bible. Think about it. God is precedes This statement, God is love. What do I mean? There are people that are not Christians, don't call themselves Christians, and all kinds of them that call themselves Christians and go to church. They say, everyone likes the idea of God's love. And it is mind-boggling what they think that means. But you see, God is That's a massive thing first before you talk about His love. Because you may be defining God's love in a way that is utterly unbiblical and ungospel and not the God that is spoken of in this book. Because if, like many, you say, well, love, here's my idea of love in my little finite, and boy, is my mind very shallow and finite, Well, God's love, then how can it be a God of wrath? Holy, righteous anger that will mete out deserved punishment. Well, let me just put it around this way. If you care about this book, you cannot define love unless you understand part of His character is a God of wrath. See, When we say God is, that doesn't mean God gives to every human being a ball of clay. Here it is. Now form your idea of God into the image you like. But biblically, God is this. And thus, he's no, He's not that because He is this. He's this way. He's not that way because He said He revealed Himself here this way. God the core of His essence, He has contours that define who He is that isn't up to our creation of Him. Yes, 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 we can never, ever, not only here, but for all eternity, you and I will never know God comprehensively because He's infinite. You can never get to the end of Him. Metaphorically, you can never get your arms of your mind totally around every portion of being of God. You would be God. We know that, of course. But we know that we can know Him to the extent He has chosen.
to reveal Himself to us in Holy Scripture, in redemptive history. And so, in this series over these next few months, our concern throughout it is with the true God. Trying to figure out, who is He? What has He said? And at times, if that rubs against my preconception of Him or presupposition of who He is, we're always forced to have these terrible struggles. Am I going to allow the Bible to change my thinking and the Spirit to change my feeling toward it? Or am I going to stick with the presuppositions that I approach it with? We're concerned not about creating God in our own image. We're concerned to do our darndest to find out who this God is that has revealed Himself through the apostles and the prophets and finally in the person, humanity of Jesus Christ. And so as we do this, as we look at these great big themes throughout, again, here's my goal. Not just so, oh, I, I got that. I know Bible a little bit better now. Got my theology down. Oh, no. I'm going to say it in the words of Jonathan Edwards, 300 years ago, pastor in Northampton. I pray this all the time for me because this is my goal as a teaching pastor. Quote, Edwards says, here's my job as a pastor. I, and it's Old English, okay, so bear with it. I should think myself in the way of my duty. What, what's, your, what's my duty? Edwards says, what's my duty, Joe? To raise your affections. That your passions of my hearers as high as I possibly can. Then there's a comma. Provided they are affected with nothing but truth. I'm going to stop the quote for a moment. Because I don't mean to jump up and down, tell you nice jokes. There's all kinds of ways in church life to get people all emotional. Oh no, that's very dangerous. I want you to see Him and have that do something to your core be to love Him whom you see all the more. I'm sorry, I can go on with Edwards. But to see nothing but truth and with the affections, that's his, for His passions, His emotions, that are not at all disagreeable with the nature, the truth of Scripture, of what they are affected with. And so... Over these next few months, if and to what extent, I ain't perfect. But in general, if I fail to be honest with texts of Scripture as we go throughout, if I fail and I miss the mark of what the text is really trying to communicate, that's called truth then I have failed. But it didn't stop there. If we're pretty accurate in our understanding of God revealed in human history, I do a good job, but we are not moved in our guts towards this God that affects our life, how we act, the decisions we make, and how we repent then we have failed. I mean, let me pause for a moment. I heard this statement recently, and I've heard it here and there, and it's mind-boggling to me. Someone may say, I was in the church service, how'd you like the sermon? Oh, I already knew all that stuff. I just, I'm just, I'm just like, you know, I may be wrong, but I'll be honest with how I feel. He just, or she just, told me a whole lot about their relationship with God at the present. I start to wonder what kind of blatant, ugly, dark sin are they living in? The, the idea that I will not go to a pastor's conference or hear a sermon on the internet because I've already heard the gospel, 
I'm thinking, what is, don't you know there's supposed to be an experience? I don't get tired of ever hearing the gospel in any contours it comes through if it's preached well. Because it's not merely I got the knowledge in my head. There's an experience, there's a breaking, there's a contriteness, there's a work of the Spirit that I'm desperate for. Not disassociated from truth, because of truth in the work of the Spirit. So, the most hopeful thing that we have in all the world is that the God who is revealed in Holy Scripture is real. That He is the true God. And the more we come to know Him in the way He has chosen to reveal Himself, which is through history, a timeline that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, the deeper opportunity we have for our faith and our roots to go deep. And so as we do this in these next few months, our process in this series is to go after God. And what do I mean? Not to go after necessarily just the fall. Not to go after Babel, Noah, Abraham, David, Saul. To go after God in all of it. In other words, to say, what is it that God is doing that is coherent. He created the world for something. What is that? Well, here it is in short, and we'll unfold this in the weeks to come. He created the world for His glory. Now, that's a big, big, what is that? And how are all these pieces through redemptive salvation history, do they fit together? Is there a a stitch that stitches them all together. You know, like you have a mosaic of material and you stitch this with that, with this, with that. And then when you stand back, you see something. Oh, look at that. The glory of God. When you just take a stitch apart like we do, when you've got to open up, oh, look at this. What is, this is, why would He do this in flooding the world? When you just look at that, and, you, and then that's it, and you don't know how to connect that to creation, and to the second creation, and to everything that's in the middle, and you have no grid to understand that, yeah, you're going to be lost. You're not going to like it. You're going to be confused. But so, what is this unifying theme running throughout? What are, think about a well-written movie versus a very badly written movie. You see, you've got a bunch of scenes in movies. Boom, you're in the bedroom. You're over here at the office. They're down at the beach. One in the restaurant. And if you actually thought of it, you've got these scenes. Boom, now scene 18. And if it's badly written, where there, there's a point to the movie, that, that there's an underlying theme that's tying it all together, it's a, you, just, you enjoy it. That made sense. You get a badly written one, you just... Why did he even have that say? I don't understand how it fits. God's not a bad writer. It's all fitting together. There's this underlying theme, and that's the real goal over these next few months, is to continue to tackle that theme and see that theme and bring that theme out in what God is doing from beginning to end in redemptive history. Now, that is a massive task because... This book here, just bound up, you know, like a regular book, right? Is really 66 separate books. 39 of them we call the Old Testament. 27 we call the New Testament. And they come themselves within the book. These different books have very different literary styles. Some are law. Here it is. Do this this way. Others are narrative, storytelling. King went here. The king went here. This bad king did this. This person did this. God did this. It's a story. Other parts of it are in the literary style of Hebrew poetry. 
all the Psalms, Ecclesiastes. You've got Proverbs, which is just wisdom literature. Gospels, narrative. You have epistles, that's letters. Here's Paul, here's Peter. They're writing letters to churches. Different literary styles by over 30 different men over a period of a thousand years from beginning in Genesis with Moses to the book of Revelation, Gospel of John. Written from Egypt, Israel or Palestine, all the way from, to Rome. That's this book. But, ultimately, because of God's sovereign providence, in that all, in all of that, what we have is a beginning. And we have a middle. And we have an end. And this precious book and these precious few months are the story of God. They're His story. They're the story of stories. Now, I'll say this in more technical language. Some of you may know it and some of you may not. A lot of theologians like to talk about their meta-narrative. Philosophers like that kind of stuff. Too. And there are a lot of Christians buying into a postmodern worldview that talks about we don't like the idea of some massive meta-narrative. In other words, big word for worldview. They want you to just create your own. I re reject it. Over the next few months, I'm going to do my best to try to unfold and see, is this not the meta-narrative that should be over your life? Because it is the only true meta-large story of everything. And it is. And even when we see in the story, God is dealing with just one family here or one individual over here. It has a profound way to draw up all humanity into that story so that Joe LeMay's little peon of a life and story is subsumed in this massive, glorious story of God revealed in human history. And so is yours. And so, as I close in the next 10, 15 minutes, turn again with me where we started, to the book of Acts, chapter 20. This will be introduction number, I don't know, five, eight. And now I want where I started with Paul, I have not failed to declare to you in Ephesus, in that region, the whole council. Of God. I want to read more extensively the whole context. Here's Paul he probably won't see these people again. He has asked from all the elders and pastors from Ephesus and the surrounding region to come and to meet him. And here is his sermon to them. I will start with verse 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold... I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I had received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all of you, because I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, pastors, to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, calling themselves pastors, not sparing the flock. And from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things in order to draw away the disciples after themselves. And therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Notice verse 27 again. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole, not part of it, not just the part I like, the whole counsel of God. Now, what's that? The, the word translated counsel there is the Greek word boule. The whole boule of God. It means purpose or His plan. The whole plan. The whole, the whole plan of God. Not pur- the whole purpose of God. And now look at the context. We just saw verse 20. Paul says, I preached all that would be profitable to you. Be helpful to you. Verse 24, I was testifying to the what? To the grace of the gospel or the gospel of grace. Verse 31, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years, remember, three years is in a school of Tyrannus in Ephesus. Day and night, not just on Sunday. Three years, he kept preaching and preaching. Where did you get it all, Paul? The book, it's massive. Three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you. So he taught his entire message day in and day out. And he summarized it here in this context as the whole counsel of God. Because the whole boule, the boule means the deliberate choice to pursue something, a plan, step by step. Now, I like. Probably the most concise, the most compact whole counsel of God ever written. It's called the book of Romans. It's Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul starts from Genesis and he goes to the end of Revelation. And especially in chapters 9, 10, 11. He's got not just history, he's got God doing his whole counsel. Summed up his glorifying himself. And the whole counsel is the various ways all those pieces fit together. It's not the whole councils, plural. Paul said it's the whole council. There's a purpose and there's a plan. And it's really, in one sense, simple with a lot of complexities. But it's the plan, the purpose of God. He created knowing exactly what He was doing from beginning to end. It is this mosaic. This is an attempt over these next few months to let you not just walk around with little patches of colored material that just look like a hodgepodge of confusion, but to stitch it together and let us stand back and see the whole counsel of God written on the mosaic. This word boule. Listen to two other times that it's used by Luke in the book of Acts. First, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. He said, this Jesus, oh, Luke didn't say, but yeah, this Jesus, Peter, delivered up according to the definite boule, the definite purpose or plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of sinful men. He says, Jesus was handed over, why? According to God's plan. In other words, not that His death was the goal. God has a plan. And Jesus' death was a part 
a very integral part. It was a step to the whole purpose. Boule, plan of God. See, boule, the purpose of God. It plans all kinds of steps unfolding, even if He does it through beginning to end, with time and in time, linear, one thing after the other, and in their place. One other place, Acts chapter 13, verse 36. Quote, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, died or fell asleep. Now, here he is again. After David served the boule, you think of it, he's got a timeline. You've got creation in Genesis. You've got Abraham. You've got Moses. You've got the judges. David fits in a timeline. And he says, and David, who fulfilled the timeline that he came in, that somehow had a step to do with the whole boule, the purpose of God. So the whole point is that this whole council, just one big mass of things, that implies various steps. And it's what Paul said, this is what I did. I didn't cease, and, and he was serious. And he says, look, I didn't, because Paul knows that in the subsequent next 2,000 years or more, there will be lots of temptations to shrink back. And he says, I did not, and therefore your blood is not on my hands because I did not hold it back. I taught the whole boule of God. And this boule of God that Paul's talking about, and I just want to say, Christian, 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 Hopefully this isn't you. If it is, just know this. It includes everything written in what we call the Old Testament. It's not an accident. For instance, in Acts 26-22, listen to how the Christian Paul spoke to King Agrippa in court. He's preaching Christ. That's what Paul's mission was, right? He didn't have a New Testament. He was being part of it. He only had what you call the Old Testament. But listen to what he says. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying, and he's preaching the gospel, listen to this, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Paul had no problem taking what you call the Old Testament preaching the gospel constantly from it. Or 2 Timothy 3.16, stunning verse, slowly hear it, slowly read it. Paul says, Timothy, all Scripture, and the word Scripture, stop here, the word Scripture in that context did not mean the New Testament. It wasn't there yet in that sense. It doesn't mean it. It means the Scripture, the Hebrew, what you call the Old Testament. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So the Old Testament is not replaced. And it doesn't need to be revised. It is exactly how God wanted it. So that when Christ comes, it makes sense. Because the Old Testament spoke of Him. Yes, in a very covered up way. But now when Christ is revealed, and the Spirit enlightens your heart to that Christ, the Christ who was there in the Old Testament pops off the pages all over the place. The New Testament... Right, Paul, Peter, what they're constantly doing in his preaching is interpreting Old Testament text in the light of Christ, which was always God's purpose. See, for instance, when you're reading the Old Testament, he, Jesus he doesn't come into play. You're, you're before Christ. And you see God goes to Abraham, gives him a promise. Abraham trusts God. And the text says, and it was credited to him for righteousness. He's looked at by God as perfectly righteous, as a sinful, wretched person. And you think, how can God do that? 
You look at David. Okay, so he's a religious guy, man after God's own heart. This wretched sin of adultery and fear which caused him to ultimately get rid of Bathsheba's husband. And Nathan the prophet confronts him. God confronted him through Nathan. And God said to David, I have put away your sin. What kind of God is that? Well, the New Testament lets us know why that can be true. We know because Jesus was as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God would have been unrighteous to do such a thing apart from Christ. Even before Christ came. But that's just one example all over the place how this unity of the Bible is coming together and runs through it all. So in this series, we're not going to approach theology, and we will be theological. You can't deal with the Bible without being theological. We're not going to approach it like some of you know the term systematic theology. Let's talk about God for a while. Let's talk about man. Let's talk about sin. Let's talk about salvation. We're going to approach it according to the way it has been given through the timeline from Genesis starting out unfolding in history. Now, I know it's late, but I'm going to close by saying, in so doing, here's my hopes. Here's my hopes of what starts to happen if it hasn't already started, and if it has, because some of you have taken me for this class before, but what I want to see happen more and more is that these realities just start to hit you. First is this, that you will start to see that it is not selfish for God to move, act, and do everything He does for His own glory. But instead, that statement, which might not mean anything to some of you right now, that statement, I want to be so filled with content that you will see that God always does Everything for His glory is the most wonderful truth in the world for me because it is only on that foundation that He can make me the happiest of all possible creatures forever and ever and ever. That God's glory, that is God Himself, is the foundation of everything. And if you get this, you'll begin to get this. The, the, the term, not just a nice throw it out there and stick it on the wall, God-centeredness, but the term God-centeredness will have such contours. You'll start to see the culture you live in, the Christian culture you live in, that will make sense, God-centeredness. And you'll start to hear sermons and you realize, person does not have a theological substructure that is biblical that makes him understand who's at the center of what he's supposed to be doing. You'll start to hear that. You'll start to say, God-centered. I love it. We all want to try to be more God-centered, not man-centered. And that will be so sweet to your soul that when you see, even in the context of religion, man is put at the core of what's going on, it starts to just give you a bad spiritual stomachache. Secondly, through this series, I want you to really be able to see that from beginning, starting with Genesis through the end, God has shown us example after example after example that the only way you are to obey Him is not like an employee obeys an employer. A needy employer has a need, and okay, I'll go do it for you. That that will be eradicated from your being that the only approach to God in His Word and commands is in the same way that you would obey your medical physician who gives you a prescription for your well-being. Three, I hope that through this series you will see that the command, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. What you will hear in that is this. God is telling me, Joe, seek to be 
as happy as you possibly can in me alone. That God is beckoning you for your eternal joy. When He deals with you, you're the end. What He wants for you in the Gospel is be infinitely happy in Jesus. And you'll hear, do all for the glory of God. That's what it means because you will start to see through redemptive history that the way God is glorified is when you are finding your heart's satisfaction in Him. That you will see that the essence and the best basic command of the Bible to David or to Paul or to you daily is delight yourself in the Lord. So my goal in this series while we're following the biblical timeline of Scripture is that we would see and feel with the psalmist the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life that through it our hearts would be able to sing with the psalmist because of what the psalmist saw we'll be able to see whom have I in heaven but you and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you my flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever and fourthly a lesson that I hope really rings in your hearts and your minds through this series is that you will see more clearly than ever that saving faith is not some thing you do in order to get it. It's not because you go get baptized as a baby or as an adult. It's not because you say a sinner's prayer with me, a pastor up here. That saving faith is not based on you, but saving faith throughout Scripture is clearly a work of God the Holy Spirit causing the heart of sinful human beings to come alive to the beauty of this God who has revealed Himself ultimately and especially in Jesus Christ. So that when we hear Jesus say the kingdom of God, the gospel, it's like this. It's like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field and he went and out of joy sold everything he had because he was just itching to buy the field to have the treasure who is God in Christ. You'll see that that is what saving faith is. That it's not an option to find Christ as your joy. It's not a religion. It's not covering the basis because I guess I'm going to die. Oh, no, no, no. Don't be deceived. It's not an option. It's the essence of what it is to be saved. And finally, oh, that we would see and be caught up into the beautiful reality of redemptive history, which as a whole is showing forth God's mercy in such a way that the greatest number of people come to delight in Him and thus reflect back to Him now and for all eternity the infinite worth of His glory. As Paul said, from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory. And so, as we pass out the cup and the bread hold them, we will partake together. But notice as we take communion, the communion of the saints together in obeying the Lord Jesus, His words. This is the new covenant. Redemptive history is all over. That statement. New covenant makes no sense unless there's such a thing as an old covenant that he's referring to that has happened and that Jesus is inaugurating in history the new covenant in His blood. So just hold those 
We will pray over and partake together. They'll be passed out as we're singing our hearts out to Christ right now. Father, I do ask that You, by Your grace upon each of us, cause us to examine our hearts as Your Apostle told us to do. That we would examine and yes, know how sinful we are and now bring repentance if in any unrepentant area exists so that we may freely eat of your body and drink of your blood together. Praise you, Jesus. Jesus.